take the full state of the universe at a given point in time, the laws are just as good at allowing you to derive the future states as they are allowing you to derive the past states. That's one way of putting it, kind of an epistemic way of putting it. Uh -huh. um, so in that sense, you know, determination works equally well in both directions in time. A different but related uh, way of putting it is thinking of like a, a video played backwards. So, you know, you take a video of some friends hanging out at a barbecue. Uh, if you were to play that video in reverse, that sequence of events would be equally well in accord with the fundamental laws of nature. Hello, my geestlings. It is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 55. And this episode is with Alison Fernandez, who's a professor of philosophy at Trinity College, Dublin. Before that, she was at Columbia, where I was before Stanford, where I am now. And she taught with, she was taught by two denizens of the Robinsons podcast universe, Akile Varzi and David Albert. And so we talk a little bit about that. We talk about how Allison got her main interest or the main focus of her work, which has been causation and how that came from studying with David. And we talk all about causation in this episode because Allison has an upcoming book with Cambridge University Press, uh, The Temporal Asymmetry of Causation. And we start off going with some history of causation, Hume, namely, and then we discuss some, some of the dominant some of the dominant account of, accounts of causation before going into some more fun things, backward causation, time travel, uh, temporal asymmetry. And then we turn to Allison's account of causation, which revolves around agency and evidence. And we talk about how this account deals with some of the aforementioned topics, namely time travel, asymmetry, reverse causation, and then at the end, we we finish with a little tale about Akile and a paper he once wrote on time travel that was really fun to hear about because I haven't read it. And I should say that I was just pretty amazed by Allison. I've I've done mm, I don't ten nearly a hundred of these at least that I've recorded at this point, uh, even though I don't necessarily release them in order. And Every now and then, I'm just kind of blown away by how smart or sharp someone is. And when you listen to this, you might think, wow, she is just so on it. This must have been scripted. But it wasn't. <laughs> she she responded as if she had weeks to like write essays to all of my questions, even though she didn't know any of my questions before we started talking. So that's just a side note. And the last thing I will say is you should follow me on Twitter at Robinson Earhart. You should like, subscribe, follow, do all that stuff. And I also have another show, Robinson Eats, on Twitch, though it, well, that's where it's live. It also goes to YouTube, but I have a pint of ice cream and typically some other treats or, I don't know, hopefully once I have this empire going and some, some funding is coming in, I'll be able to order some really fancy food to eat on that. But anyway, so come join me on Twitch. I eat and, and talk with whoever's there. And without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed talking with Allison. For it looked, when I looked at your research, that you first started writing on causation. Was that the first problem that really gripped you in philosophy or just something that came in the course of working with Akile and David Albert at Columbia? Um, I guess it came to be more at my time at Columbia. There is some continuity though. So I think the first questions that really gripped me in philosophy were very big, broad ones about how we and our theory arising related to the world. So I was very interested in German idealism uh, I was very interested in kind of how to embed the agent in things. Um, I hadn't really put together philosophy of science with these interests when I first started out. Um, and I got onto the topics of causation, mainly through taking a class with David Albert, where 
you know, taking his approach, it turned out thinking about agency was required to make sense of how causation fit into a physical world. And it was the first time I saw sort of how to do in a scientifically informed way, the kind of philosophy I was interested in of sort of putting the agent at the center of thinking about, you know, the agent's place in our theorizing. Um, Okay. And I, I saw that you've recently submitted a book to Cambridge University Press on the asymmetry of causation. So that seems like uh, probably a great place to start. Am I right that Hume really gave the analysis of causation that's a starting point for most contemporary discussions? It's certainly a starting point. Um, you know, many people think I would say that Hume identified something correct about causation, but are dissatisfied with the conventional or what looks to be the conventionalist aspect of the account. So the reading people often make of Hume's account is that it's just by definition or analytic that causes come before their effects. And at least most people in the discussion now about the temporal asymmetry of causation think that's kind of gets in the way even of stating what we want to explain, um, which is that, you know, it's contingently the case that causes come before their effect. It's not analytic. And okay. we should sort of have some other criteria in place for what counts as causation. But this, I think, is the, the first time on the podcast that we've really talked about causation. So what is what was Hume's account, basically? So the... Again, the way it's normally read, and I'm not going to defend it as a historical reading of Hume, sure, but sure. the way it's normally read in these discussions is once we encounter two events of a certain type where event type one uh, is regularly followed by event type two, uh, we kind of develop the idea that they are connected and causally so, and we attribute causation there. So... If you wanted to get an account of causation out of that kind of story, it would be something like A counts as the cause of B, just in case B regularly follows from A. Um, and as you can see, it's quite a minimal account. It mm -hmm. doesn't say anything about how A and B are connected by laws or something like that. It just requires regular succession. But firmly baked into the account is that B has to come after A. So you, by fiat, exclude the idea of simultaneous causation, A coming at the same time as B, uh, or B coming before A, what's usually called backwards causation. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned, I think, that today we reject something about this account, and or, or most people do. What are some of the, before we get into some of the agent-centered accounts that you've written about, what are some of the other dominant accounts of causation today that diverge from Hume's treatment? Yeah, so it's, I'll try and give us a quick overview. There is in a certain sense a, a class of accounts called regularity theories where you attempt to start with Hume's account and then build in more features for what you want to say when A causes B. Um, so you might, for example, require that they're connected by the nature of laws, something like that. Out of that story also comes probabilistic accounts, which again, they take very many forms, but one form of probabilistic account is to say that A, the cause has to raise the probability of B. Um, that's kind of like regular succession, but the regularity is only probabilistic. So it only has to raise the probability of B rather than always following from, uh, following from A. But in a certain way, these accounts are sort of similar in spirit in that they're looking for, you know, some very basic patterns in the world and just identifying those patterns of occurrences as causal. Uh, opposed to that is, I would say, three large schools, maybe. It's hard to distinguish exactly how many sure, schools sure. there are here. Um, one you might call the metaphysical accounts, which often took laws and causes to be very closely connected and where causation is thought of as a relatively fundamental uh, producing relation that holds between particular events. Um, and often it's a primitive, so we're not trying to reduce it to anything else. And it's considered to be sort of a, 
you know, basic cement of the universe, this kind of view. Uh, then we have another set of accounts which are attempting to reduce causation to something about perhaps laws and other things, but in a kind of more complicated way than on Hume's account. Um, so these often go via counterfactuals. Uh, Lewis's mm -hmm. account is an example here. So are the statistical mechanical accounts uh, of David Albert and Barry Lower. And effectively here, you're taking causation to be related to laws, but to be different. And the interesting part of the story is often explaining why causation can be temporally asymmetric, whereas laws are not. Um, and then you have what I would say is probably the most common account these days, or certainly the most discussed, which is um, accounts in the causal modeling tradition of the kind defended by Judea Pearl and Jim Woodward. And, you know, there's a lot of dispute of whether these in fact count as accounts of causation, but effectively they put constraints on, you know, A is going to count as a cause of B just in case intervening on A by a pseudo-causal causal process will raise the probability of B. And what is distinctive about these accounts is they're non-reductive, so they don't, uh, you know, causation is featuring in the analysis of causal relations, so they don't explain, you know, what causation is in more basic terms, um, but they do put some substantial constraints on what causation is, um, and they don't, you know, they're much more, say, scientifically motivated, informed than the sort of traditional metaphysical accounts that I began with. That was that was really good, <laughs> really good, really concise. And I'm I'm fam I'm familiar with the production and counterfactual account the those first two of the three metaphysical views that you mentioned. I think I'm I'm mainly familiar with them from Ned Hall's famous paper on causation, but I am much less familiar with this third view. What was the name that you gave the one Pearl and Woodward's? What was the name you sort of you gave it? So you might call them interventionist accounts or accounts in the causal modeling tradition. Um, okay. They go by various names now. Um, Woodward defended it primarily as an interventionist account of causal explanation. And where does the interventionist word come from? Why does that fit in? Yeah, so the one way of characterizing the account is that it's when you intervene on the cause is when the cause raises a probability of the effect. So unlike the probabilistic accounts that we started with, it's not that any occurrence of A raises a probability of B, and therefore A counts as a cause of B. It's only when you intervene on A by a suitable causal process, and that changes the probability of B, that you say A is causally relevant for B. Um, so this is to deal with a whole class of counterexamples which beset the sort of standard probabilistic accounts. So if you imagine, for example, a case where you have a common cause with two effects, um, say I start drinking alcohol and I start stumbling around and I go red and flushed in the face, me stumbling around and being red and flushed in the face are going to be probabilistically correlated, but one is not causing the other. And the mm -hmm. idea is the interventionist account is going to get the right result here because, you know, if I, you know, stop going red in the face by taking some kind of medication, it's not going to cure my drunkenness. So it's still going to be stumbling around. Um, similarly, if you sort of hold me upright and prevent me stumbling around, I'm still going to go red in the face. Um, so if you, it's only when you intervene on whether I'm drinking or not, that you will in fact change, you know, my stumbling around and my red in the face character. And so that's how you identify which correlations are causal. It's not just those that raise the probability of the effects, it's those that raise the probability or change the probability of the effects when you intervene on them using a suitable causal process. Okay. Okay. So I think this gives us, that was really helpful. And I think that gives us um, a good background. Now you write, I think it's in the abstract for this book that causes always seem to come prior in time to their effects. And before we assume this, because I mean, experience makes me want to agree with you. Are there accounts on which it's sensible to say otherwise? Is there much of a motivation for denying that premise? Um, I guess there's two questions here. You know, one is 
are there accounts that deny it's the case in the actual world or are there accounts which uh you know allow for backwards causation or simultaneous causation in other settings so lots of accounts of the kind that are explored in the book um in fact all of them um you know of the interesting ones explored in any depth um these all think it's a sensible question you know it's perfectly reasonable to ask sort of you know why does causation go forwards you know what would be the case for it to go backwards um none of them rule that those kind of questions out as silly or anything like that um but they tend to think that in the actual world um you know barring some very minor details which are usually considered counterexamples uh the causation goes forwards there are accounts out there um including some defended by agency theorists who will argue for backwards causation in some settings um particularly quantum mechanics in the actual world uh i could talk a little bit about those but most most people haven't been convinced by those stories and so a lot of the game has been accepting that causes come before their effects at our world but thinking it's an interesting project to explain why that's the case and to certainly allow for a conceptually coherent cases uh where causation would run the other direction okay well i don't want to step too far away from the causal asymmetry but i know that you've you've also done a fair amount of writing and talking on time travel and how does how does that fit into the discourse on backward causation i mean very neatly for me so um <laughs> Achille was actually someone who suggested I go have a look at time travel, having worked on causation. Oh, really? uh, and it was a very good suggestion for me because it turned out to be, I mean, to my mind, it's just an excellent setting in which to explore issues of temporal asymmetries. Uh, because in the actual world, you know, a lot of phenomena are temporally asymmetric and they always align together. Um, you know, we think of time as running forwards precisely because there are so many processes that are directed all the same way in time and for that reason trying to figure out the relations between these processes you know whether some are more fundamental than others which are explanatory more basic it gets quite hard um, and one way to disentangle things is to start playing around in settings which allow for some backwards causation some phenomena that normally run forwards in time to run backwards in time and kind of seeing what else changes in those settings so a particular interest for me was evaluating counterfactuals, which are often considered to be the basis of causation. Um, and I argued that, look, standard ways of evaluating counterfactuals that people have defended in the actual world go haywire in cases of time travel. And the lesson there was that the reason they go haywire is that they weren't designed to be kind of fully neutral and just deliver out whatever causal relations they were, they were kind of pegged to asymmetries that held in the actual world. Uh, and the further upshot, which is a little more argument, but um, if the aim was to trace the temporal asymmetry of causation back to other things, you need a method of evaluating counterfactuals that is quite neutral and that works for all kinds of causal structures. If you kind of already kind of hand select your counterfactual method to build in certain features, it's not going to be the right kind of method for revealing what the basis of causal asymmetry is. So I, I know that we we mentioned counterfactuals uh, briefly in the beginning, but can you maybe give an example of what you referred to as the, the standard way of evaluating counterfactuals so that then maybe we can talk a bit about how they go haywire with time travel? Yeah, so... The standard way kind of roughly speaking builds off the Lewisian tradition. So it starts with David Lewis's account, but features of it continue with these statistical mechanical accounts that people like, uh, again, David Albert and Barry Lower have defended. So the way, say we have a counterfactual, uh, like, well, make it a question, something like what will happen uh, if I drop my glass? the standard way of evaluating these kind of counterfactuals is to consider a nearby world that has many of the same features as our world in particular it's going to have 
exactly the same past or almost exactly the same past as the actual world up until a short time. Uh, so let's say I don't drop my glass in the actual world. In this counterfactual world, I'm considering a world where I do drop my glass. Um, and maybe a few seconds before I drop it, you know, something goes different in this counterfactual world. Um, so neurons fire differently and make a different decision. And then after that point, though, after the, the glass has now been dropped in the counterfactual world, um, I allow the world to diverge as much as it needs to from the actual world in order that it have the same laws as the actual world. So, for example, we will keep gravity as it is, and so the glass will presumably now drop. Um, maybe water will spill out and splash out. Glass will go everywhere, um, and the world's mind might be very different from now on. Uh, and the idea here is that if I'm using counterfactuals to analyze causation, it's going to give me the result that if changes to the present made were made, if, if things in the present had been different, the past would still be the same, pretty much but the future may well be different. And if I think those changes are what causal relations are picking up on, I'm going to get causation going forwards, but not backwards. So that's Got the it. sort of standard method. Mm -hmm. And then how does it go haywire though with the, with the time travel? Yeah. So there's uh, a couple of directions in which it goes haywire. Um, the very first way, I mean, again, this is not, there are details here I'm going to sort of skate yeah, over. Yeah, no problem. Um, because Lewis himself, you know, he considered time travel cases and had his counterfactual account of causation. They were meant to fit together. Um, but at least one thing that's very clear about cases of time travel is that you can no longer hold the past fixed when evaluating counterfactuals. Uh, so say I wonder about, you know, what would happen to Doctor Who were she to enter the time machine now? and set the dial to 1800, we'd like to say that if she were to do that, she would appear in the past in 1800 and things would be different in the past. Um, so at the very least, it's kind of what we might call the kind of rough and ready standard way of evaluating counterfactuals of holding the past fixed, um, can't completely work. Uh, more controversially, maybe, uh, well, more surprisingly, there's two other features that are going to be problematic as well. One is that for similar reasons, uh, you can't keep facts in the present fixed either. Because <laughs> um, you can imagine kind of zigzag cases where you make some changes to the past and they would kind of evolve the changes in the present. Uh, so again, it's a little, little in the details here, but um, you know, things say Dr. Hulonia travels back one day and then hangs around at a different location. Um, she has to consider counterfactual changes. Like, you know, if I change my hair color now, you know, myself at the same time would have different color hair. So you have to allow for simultaneous changes. Mm -hmm. um, and then maybe the most controversial one is that in the sort of standard story, there's kind of nothing to stop future events from changing. They can change very easily in counterfactual scenarios. Uh, but I argued that actually because in time travel scenarios, events that are in our futures can also quite reasonably be in our pasts because of the way the time is looping around here. Uh, Do you have an so, example for that? That yeah. would help me see it better. Yeah. Uh, so say we have Doctor Who getting in a time machine in 2023 and traveling back to 1800. When she travels back to 1800, she traveled into the past, you know, that's, and everything happening in 2023 is in the future. And it might seem like because it's in the future, things she does now can influence whatever you like about the future. You know, so say she was to let off a nuclear device in 1800, that would lead to a future which was very different from the actual one. Mm -hmm. The problem here, though, is that um, in a certain way, the fact that he, she has traveled from the future suggests there might be constraints on the kind of um, things she can bring about in 1800. Namely, she can't do things in 1800, which would, in a certain sense, contradict uh, the fact that 
she has in fact traveled back in time from 2023. So she can't destroy the world, for example. Um, Lewis originally discusses these cases under the label of the grandfather paradox about yeah. someone sort of trying to kill their grandfather before their grandfather had a chance to have a child. And he has, you know, Lewis has a number of, he says some smart things here, but he also says some very odd things. Um, the smart things involve, look, merely the fact that something's happened at a time doesn't mean it should constrain our abilities. That seems right. But I think what he was wrong about here was that uh, we can't appeal to the fact that something is in the future in order to explain why it can't be held fixed, uh, why we should keep it open when evaluating counterfactuals. Because where something is located in time is just not what's relevant here. What we need is kind of information about how thing, events are spread out through time, how they relate to each other, the causal connections. And in the cases like the grandfather paradox in this Doctor Who case, events in the future have all the hallmarks of events in the past. <laughs> right. You know, they have causal influence on the past. Um, we can have memories of them, records of them. And so my argument was actually time travelers are going to be constrained in their freedom in ways that, you know, actual agents in the ordinary world aren't um, precisely because when we evaluate these counterfactuals, we actually have good reason to keep some of these future events fixed, even though they're in the future. Now, again, I, this is even moving even farther away from the causal asymmetry, but is your interest in the time travel problems limited to what they can tell us about causation and agency? Or are you also at all interested in whether these things are physically uh, or technologically possible? I will say I am mainly interested in, in them as thought experiments, um, yeah. both for causation and agency. Uh, I did some work with psychologists as well at one point about valuing past and future events. And in that scenario also, time travel is useful because, again, it allows you to mess around with what counts as future and past events. Um, I do a little bit. So I do some public lectures occasionally on time travel. So I, I try and keep up with some of the discussion about its possibility um, and I will say in this context, there are some kind of odd moves that get made sometimes. Um, so for example, I'd heard about this argument that, you know, even if we were to invent a time machine now, it could only go back in time <laughs> to when we first invented it. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that as well. Yeah. Interesting and deep. As far as I can tell, when I looked into the details of this, that's because they defined invention as meaning creating something which did not exist at earlier times. And if that's how you've defined invention, then of course the time machine can't go back further because it can't exist at any earlier time or it doesn't count as inventing it. Um, but this is a crazy definition of invention if uh -huh. we're talking about the possibility of time travel where presumably invention is something like causing something to happen <laughs> uh, of a certain kind. Um, so I do try and keep an eye on some of those kind of puzzles because these are cases where some philosophical analysis can be helpful. Hmm. Okay. Well, now re returning back to the to the main th thread of our dialogue to um, causal asymmetry. Now, causal asymmetry in the real world is that a a product of an asymmetrical component? to the laws of nature or is that n not the case and the wrong way of looking at it so there will be some controversy here but sure. for me let's, and for let's most get into it working, yeah <laughs> for me and most people working in this area the laws of fundamental physics the dynamical laws are by and large and for the most part temporally symmetric they work the same way in both temporal directions even more strongly, they kind of look the same in both temporal directions. And so most philosophers looking at this, including myself, said, look, even if there is some kind of temporal asymmetries in the laws, it's not the kind of stark asymmetry that could explain this kind of pervasive macroscopic phenomenon. Um, so we do have kind of evidence about minor failures of parity, sorry, failures of uh, symmetry between the past and future um, 
but they're kind of minor in a certain very quantifiable way. And occasionally people have tried for accounts, which would scale that up to something that we observe at the macroscopic level. Um, but most of us sort of haven't been convinced. And, you know, given what we think we know about causation, we think causation is kind of paradigmatically a kind of macroscopic phenomenon um, whose, you know, if we're going to look for the origin of features of causation, we're not expecting to see it in kind of details about how the laws are formulated. We're expecting to see it in kind of much broader structures. Mm -hmm. um, so no, the laws are for most people not the source of the temporal asymmetry of causation. And as for somebody like me who is not at all a trained physicist, it is difficult for me to wrap my head around what it means to say that the the dynamical laws of physics are temporally symmetric or symmetric. Is there a, a sort of simple way of explaining just what that what that is? Yeah, I mean, so for someone visual like me, uh, I often like to think of it in terms of, you know, you take the full state of the universe at a given point in time. The laws are just as good at allowing you to derive the future states as they are allowing you to derive the past states. That's one way of putting it, kind of an epistemic way of putting it. Uh -huh. um, so in that sense, you know, determination works equally well in both directions in time. Um, a different and yeah, somewhat different but related uh, way of putting it is thinking of like a, a video played backwards. So, you know, you take a video of some friends hanging out at a barbecue. Uh, if you were to play that video in reverse, that sequence of events would be equally well in accord with the fundamental laws of nature. Even though it would look kind of odd, you know, you might have like people sort of jumping out of the pool at odd angles and like water from splash that had been splashed, you know, collecting onto areas and whatnot. It would look very odd, but it would actually be in accord with the underlying physical laws. Hmm. Well, the I think the, the visualization you gave is very helpful. The idea that with the laws of nature, you can just as easily or reliably derive future states as past states. So then the question, I guess this is the whole point of the book perhaps, is how we account for why things do seem to move in one direction rather than the other. And again, before we get into some of the agent-centered accounts, what are other dominant ways of accounting for the direction of time? So there's yeah going to be a full range again. A ton, yeah, um, yeah. So even accepting what I just said about laws, some people would nevertheless hold that there is kind of a deep temporal asymmetry either in time itself or in a relation like production or governance where, you know, past states of the world produce future states, maybe via the laws, maybe via causation, some kind of like deep intrinsic so, something primitive that we just don't have to explain further? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's arguments over exactly which bit is primitive out of those. Is it the laws that have a primitive direction to it? Is it like time itself? You know, there's different stories there. Um, Can I cut, um, you, cut you off for one second? I'm just curious. I talked to Tim Maudlin. I had him on the show recently. And he thinks of laws as just a place to stop you don't further uh analyze them any anymore and we didn't talk about well maybe we talked about time a little bit but as far as you know is he someone who m might take this this direction of time as being primitive and sorry for putting put trying to put his oh, words yeah. in your mouth. uh he's my favorite example of such a view um oh perfect i mean there are you know there's a metaphysical debate about the nature of time. I don't know if you've covered A and B theory, probably. Some people uh, have. Yeah, we didn't talk too much about A and B theory. I also had an episode with David Albert on time. We're going to do an episode that's just the three of us, which I think will be really fun to hear them go at it. But uh, no, we haven't talked about A and B theory on the show yet. Okay. I've seen, I, 
I remember being taught by both Tim and David on one occasion, and that was an interesting class. Um, <laughs> so there is a separate discussion, almost a separate discussion about the metaphysics of time. Some do you think the present is privileged in some special way and what counts as the present changes over time. So for these views, so-called A-theory views, the direction of time is baked into time and you have to have a primitive direction. So that's where the direction of time comes from. It's a pretty much a primitive fact about time. What's interesting about Tim Maudlin's view is that he doesn't count, he doesn't fall under this model. Um, he agrees with the B theorists that there is no special slice of the universe that is the present moment. But unlike a lot of B theorists these days, he thinks there is a primitive direction to production, which is essentially a, a law-like relation for him. Uh, so yes, Maudlin is kind of an excellent example here um, where, you know, a lot of the view looks very similar to things like what David Albert will have, but Tim is very insistent on the primitive direction of production, which underlies it. Um, so that's kind of one whole class of accounts. Uh, then, you know, the remaining accounts. So it's hard to divide them up cleanly because there are so many different projects here. But a lot of, you know, people like Lewis didn't quite have the physics down on this point. And so they were looking for, you know, they weren't with Maudlin. They didn't want a primitive direction of time, but they were looking for certain kinds of patterns or regularities that could kind of stand in and would explain, you know, why we seem to have a direction of time and why various phenomena were temporally directed. Um, but a lot of these attempts didn't quite work. And I think one of the, I don't know, big success stories of 20th century, 21st century philosophy um, is tying this kind of philosophical program of explaining temporal asymmetries uh, to the fortunes of statistical mechanical explanations of thermodynamic asymmetries. Um, and this is sort of what I learned from David Albert. Um, so there's lots of different kind of moves you can make in the program. Not all of them will agree with um, Albert about the importance of the path hypothesis. There are, you know, different alternatives. Um, but, you know, the broad school that I think is in some ways the only game in town for those interested, <laughs> um, you know, ties asymmetries in general to thermodynamic asymmetries in some way often by saying they have the same things explaining both of them. Um, and, you know, they use some combination of laws, often special initial conditions or boundary conditions of some kind, some kind usually some probabilities. And out of these kind of ingredients, uh, you end up with asymmetries. And usually the only asymmetric ingredient are these boundary conditions, which you place often on the start of the universe. Um, but it gets complicated. Maybe you have to place boundary conditions at other places as well. Debate continues. Okay. And so if the asymmetry of time doesn't appear to be a problem with or an inherent feature of time itself or the laws, then how does this lead you into agent-centered views? Yeah. Um so I'm going to tell two stories. One is the more Please. kind of classic asymmetric agency centered views. And then I'm going to kind of distinguish my view from that more classic view. On the kind of classic view, which is the kind defended by Hugh Price, um, he talks about there being kind of a symmetric state of affairs in the world. So even though the world has lots of kind of interesting patterns, in it and interesting relations he thinks of it as being in a certain sense symmetric in the way events determine other events but the agent who has view on reality and thinks of the past as fixed um, acts and decides towards the future thinks that the future is open for Hugh Price it's only when we kind of adopt that point of view that we start seeing temporally asymmetric relations like causation it's literally because we're taking certain things to be open for us to decide upon and then taking other things to depend on our decisions and actions. 
while the past remains fixed. Um, the reason I mentioned this first is that this is the way most people, you know, when they say agency theory, this is often what people have in mind, this idea that the agent kind of imposes an asymmetry that otherwise wasn't there. Um, the kind of agency view that I like um, and that a couple of other people uh, are also well, starting to Before we get into your view, that that view is is the problem or one of the problems just then that temporal asymmetry or causation seems to be inherently dependent on agents because that's that's sort yeah. of how it sounds like and we don't we don't want to imagine that there's no direction to time when people aren't around or yeah, yeah. i mean so this is one of the kind of classic objections um different responses have been made often one of the moves is to go kind of intersubjective or projectivist so the idea here is that you know even though the direction of time and causation depends on me it doesn't depend on me personally it depends on the kind of structure of agents around here and now and lo and behold we all have the same kind of temporal structure so all of us are you know roughly speaking holding the past fixed when we deliberate taking future events to be open to choice and because we share these features in common there is a kind of objectivity based on this kind of intersubjective shared perspective um, there's also an idea which is that even in situations where there aren't agents around or that don't have much structure to them, we kind of import this asymmetric point of view we have. And that's why we think of causation as being directed, you know, even at the time of the Big Bang, um, even in distant parts of the galaxy, uh, we're kind of just projecting this point of view we have here. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, standard kind of responses. Um, I think it's in some ways a matter of philosophical disposition. Some people think this agent relativism is, you know, interesting and precisely what we should be after. Um, for other people, it's clearly a sign that we've gone wrong. Okay. I'm, and I'm sorry for cutting you off before you went into your account, but I think that that's helpful for, for clarifying uh, Price's account for me. But so then how does, how does yours differ? Yeah. So, Whereas Price was looking for causation itself to be agent dependent, um, there's more to say on that, but that's, you know, roughly put. Uh, for myself, it's more that the agent features in explaining or justifying why we pick out certain worldly relations as causal. So it's not that the agents have to be around or we have to take up the point of view of an agent or anything like that. Um, it's just that, you know, there is the structure out there. A lot of that structure is temporally asymmetric, but in order to justify why certain patterns in that structure count as causal relations, we need to consider the needs of the deliberating agent. So, uh, different ways to tell this story in more detail, but effectively, um, if you think of what happens for an agent and the kind of probabilities of relevance to them when they're in decision-making, deliberating kind of uh, states, they're never going to be in a position of taking their decisions or action now to raise the probability of past events. Um, you can go into sort of discussions on why that's the case. But the sure. idea is if, if that's the case for agents, no wonder they're looking for causal relations that also have that kind of structure where the probabilities only get raised towards the future and not towards the past. So even though the probabilities are there independently of agents, these kind of objective worldly probabilities, in order to explain why we pick out certain patterns in those as causal relations, uh, we need to revert back to the fact that we are kind of small, localized, deliberating things, you know, physically instantiated um, that want to sort of bring about ends that we're interested in. Hmm. And maybe we could talk about an example. You use an example often of Tamsin and her umbrella uh, mm -hmm. and the role that evidence plays in this whole framework maybe could could we talk about tamsin and her umbrella maybe to to just get a more concrete understanding of how this view is supposed to work we can indeed <laughs> um 
So the kind of puzzle, both for agency views and for other views, is something like this. Look, we think that we need causal relations because we want to make good decisions. We want to decide on causes that will raise the probability of their effects. But we can kind of imagine scenarios where you have someone like Tamsin who always makes a certain decision in response to certain states of affairs. So say Tamsin always decides to take her umbrella when she sees it's raining outside. On this occasion, there is going to be a correlation between the decision and action she performs now and this past state of affairs. And, you know, for all accounts, but especially for an agency account, why doesn't that count as an effective strategy for her? You know, why isn't this the causal relation? Why isn't this the kind of relation that she should care about? And, you know, there's different responses you can make, but the basics of the responses that I think Hamzen's decision or action now to take the umbrella is correlated with the state of the weather in the past. It goes via her doing something like observing the state of the weather or otherwise having evidence of that past state. This, only, this not only makes it kind of strange as to why she'd be doing things now to influence something that she already knows about, but it also means that given the evidence she has while deliberating, nothing about the decision or action she makes now is going to change the probability that should be assigned to that past state of affairs. So again, if we're thinking about choosing causes that will raise the probability of their effects relative to the kind of states of affairs that an agent has sort of access to, um, we're never going to be in a situation where we can make decisions or action now to raise the probability of past states. Uh, whereas towards the future, it goes quite differently. You know, there can well be correlations between decisions and actions I perform now and states further in the future that don't require me to have like evidence while I'm deliberating of any particular kind. Mm -hmm. um, and I mentioned, you know, so Tamsin can uh, decide to take her umbrella and this could be, you know, good evidence that she'll have the umbrella with her later. And this doesn't require her to be in any particular state or to decide on taking her umbrella for any particular reason. It seems to me, though, that in a... Okay, we're still recording. It seems to me, though, in a way that this whole evidentiary relation, like Tamsin using... Tamsin relying on the past to deliberate about the future sort of supervenes already on this direction of time. Uh, is that the wrong way of looking at it? Uh, sorry yeah. if that wasn't, okay. Could you, could you <laughs> so, clarify that for me? Yeah. Um, in some versions of Hugh Price's view of agency theorists, it kind of looks like that's what's going on. You know, as agents, we hold the past fixed when deliberating, we keep the future open. And yeah, if that's the basis of our explanation of the temporal asymmetry of causation, it looks bad because we should be explaining why agents do that by appealing to the fact that uh, either time or causation has a direction to it. Uh, the difference with the kind of agency theorists that agency theories that I like, and I think also Hugh Price on his clearer days, it's more about the evidence that you have while deliberating. So here's an interesting asymmetry. When it comes to correlations between decisions you make now and uh, events at other times, when it goes towards the future, when the event is in the future of your decision, it doesn't matter like why you make the decision or why you do the action. It doesn't require you to be in any particular state, the times in between, it doesn't require you to have any particular evidence, you know? Um, every time, you know, if I lie down at appropriate times, I go to sleep. It doesn't have to sort of, doesn't require um, any kind of further things beyond the action decision to bring about certain states of affairs in the future. Of course, for like actions to be successful, often we need other things to cooperate, but there doesn't have to be anything special about us as deliberators. We can do things for different reasons, with different kinds of states in mind, whatever. Towards the past, it's very different. Um, towards the past, there can well be correlations between decisions I make now and states in the past. You know, I decide to get an ice cream whenever an ice cream ban appears. 
but that requires me to be at certain kind of states at times in between. I need to kind of want the ice cream and observe the ice cream truck um, in order to develop this correlation. So it's true this is a kind of a, a temporal features of agent that you can characterize it in kind of temporally neutral terms. Um, and that's what's important to us. There's kind of an interesting difference between how the correlations are spread around and point even further, you know, for people like me, we're thinking of agents as very much physical beings that could be instantiated, not just by humans, but by robots of various kinds, by other kinds of machines. And so explain in other terms, but the idea is we wouldn't be explaining them in causal terms. We'd be explaining them in terms of perhaps records or, you know, other things about the way correlations are spread around. Uh, so I guess, yeah, there's two important things here. One is that the characterization of what's interesting about agency can be done in kind of temporally neutral ways. Um, and secondly, whatever asymmetries are there are ultimately going to be explained in other terms as well, um, in a way that avoids circularity, at least regarding causation. Okay. And then one last concern or something that I don't quite understand is why your agency account doesn't fall same to that same, doesn't fall prey to that same objection that Hugh Prices might, namely that the direction of time might depend on agents just because of the um, the role that deliberation plays here. So like, what if there are no agents to deliberate? Why is there still going to be this asymmetry to time? Yeah, so this gets back to kind of the original motivations for using the agent here. So recall for me, it's something like agency is part of justifying why certain objective parts of the structure deserve to be called causal. And the idea is in the normal world, in kind of normal good cases where agents are around we learn that certain aspects of the probabilistic structure of the universe count as causal once we have that though we can start to identify those structures even in cases where agents aren't around um so to take you know the simplest aspect of it if you've already figured out that agents can never make use of probabilistic relations directed towards the past you have good grounds for never identifying those as causal, um, even if you haven't got agents around to kind of test that out. Um, there's other aspects as well about the kind of localization of these structures. Um, and it's not, you know, this is one of the big challenges to the agency account is kind of identifying, you know, giving criteria for identifying these structures in other settings. Um, but at least the kind of background motivation for us is clear on the kind of half objective, half agency-like approaches, it's not that we think that causation depends on agents. It's more like um, just understanding or justifying why certain relations get picked out as causal requires thinking about agents. But the relations themselves are sort of fully objective out there in the world, and they can obtain in cases when agents aren't around. Okay. Well, then the last thing I will ask about causation and time is how this agency account relates back at all to something else we talked about, which is the possibility of time travel and these sort of strange examples we were discussing. Yeah. So to me, this is a very exciting area because I think one of the big advantages to this agency style approach is that it starts to, I think it starts to do, some of its promise is displayed when you put it in time travel scenarios. Um, and, you know, time travel scenarios, you could do it just with objects, but often people find it more evocative to put agents in the picture. And that sort of gives you the ease of making the agency story about causation kind of appear very neatly. So recall, like, one of the struggles about time travel cases is that you can get kind of confused very quickly about which events count as being in the past or the future. Because in a certain sense, they're often both. You have these causal loops happening where events can be in both the causal future and the causal past of where you are now. So, you know, Doctor Who in 1800 um, is in the causal past of her 2023 self, but also in its causal future because her leaving 2023 is what caused her appearance in the past. 
So if you have ways of thinking about causation that are looking for what you might call global features of the world and that kind of treat all events at a single time as being on a par, um, they tend to work badly in time travel scenarios because you can't treat an event as being either in the past or in the future. It's often both. And it's going to be kind of relative to how you've traveled there. It's going to count as in the past or the future. The hope is that at least in some cases, the agency account does better because it's interesting. It kind of keeps track of what probabilistic relations are sort of bound up with the agent um, and closely related to the agent. So a very simple case of sort of someone, a, an agent traveling from the future into the past, it's clear that along her trajectory there, um, the events in what we'd call the future actually count as the past. And, mm. you know, the agency theory of causation will say, you know, this is the direction causation is now going in. It goes sort of along with her travels um, and same for other aspects. And so you have a kind of, by having a localized agent that kind of collects information of a certain kind um, is a sort of information gatherer, you have a kind of a way of keeping track of more local aspects of probabilistic and causal structure that isn't available if you include these very global bits of the story like hold all past events fixed or hold future events open. Um, so even for people who don't like the agency account, in its kind of fullest, most agency-like form, um, you know, there is something to be said for using agents as kind of small, localized, physical systems to help keep track of how temporal and causal order can shift around in a single system. Okay. Okay. Well, this has been, talking about the causation has been great. I just wanted to end with one last thing that I know that uh, we can connect on, and that is Akile Varzi, who, uh, so he was your sponsor for your thesis. I absolutely adore him. And I know that I don't even have to ask if you do, uh, everybody just absolutely adores him, but do you have any favorites of his works? Because I go on. Yeah, no. Cause he, I mean, he's written so much and so widely and they're all distinctly Akile pieces or uh, Achille um, Roberto Cazzati pieces but are there any that come to mind for you as a favorite I mean it's, it's tough I mean look I do teach the one um, the time travel piece uh, about the funding application for the time travel project and I you know as with a lot of these pieces it's oh, I don't, I don't, oh. Oh, I don't know that one so maybe oh, the last thing we could do is I would just love to hear a little bit about Achille's piece on time travel yeah, so look, I think it's maybe like a, a three-page item that takes the form of uh, a group of time travel researchers who have applied for funding to build a time machine and the series of rejections they get <laughs> about why this is not a worthwhile project to fund. Um, you know, and it very quickly and very neatly goes through a number of the kind of paradoxes regarding time travel and kind of you know, is left in a kind of unsettled way about what to make of all this. Um, I mean, I think the upshot is something like so many of our standards for what count as worth doing and worth funding kind of don't work when you move to a time travel scenario and you're going to have to mess around with things. Um, but, you know, as with a lot of, yeah, it's just short and neat and sweet and, um yeah, it brings out a lot of what I like about Achille and his work yeah. as well. I'll just ask, what are like what's one of the reasons that they reject uh the time travel scientist proposal? Well, it's something I mean, here's one of them. Like, if you're gonna do anything good with your time travel machine, we'd already know about it and nothing great has happened <laughs> from it. So you must either like either it's not gonna work or you're not gonna do anything good with it. Um, you know, okay, we have no, no that's a great one. <laughs> yeah. We have evidence that no one was around doing the helpful stuff. You know, why should we fund you? Mm -hmm. And so what's lovely and sweet about the argument is that they're right in one, one sense and wrong in another. So it seems quite reasonable to use the fact that nothing good has come as evidence and nothing good will come. At the same time, you know, holding that as a reason not to give the funding, maybe part of the reason why nothing good comes of it is that the funding wasn't given. Um, so 
yeah, I think we have competing intuitions about what's going to happen in that case. And it just does a, yeah, a lovely job of bringing out what's odd about these cases. Okay. Well, uh, it's also, it's always great to talk about Aquila. It's also always great to learn something new, especially about the causation literature, because it's, it's endlessly fascinating, but thanks so much for joining me, Allison. This was, this was really fun. No worries. Um, yeah, it was fun to talk about and I disagree. Yeah. These topics, there's so much great stuff out there and also so much stuff that's kind of unsettled as yet. So plenty more people should be working in this area too. Hold on, geeselings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.